Listener Production. G'day, I'm former police officer Brent Sanders. And for the past 25 years, I've dedicated myself to sharing what I've learnt on the force to the Australian public so they can better protect themselves from falling victim to crime. So with the help of some of the most respected current and former detectives and high-ranking law enforcement agents, we're going to pull back the curtain on what life is like on the force and what they've learned about how crime and criminals really work. These are real stories from real detectives. Sandra Nicholson, so far, is the highest-ranking officer I've interviewed on this podcast. In 2005, she became the Assistant Commissioner at Victoria Police. That's the second to the top, an incredible achievement. I gathered the team together and said, we have to do the impossible, and we arrested that member. He had no idea that the surveillance team were there watching everything that he did. We'll get to that amongst a plethora of other achievements through her 35-plus-year-long career, like the role she played in the early 80s around some of the country's most vicious bushfires, and then, as Assistant Commissioner, the high-pressure, high-stakes work she had to undertake during the Melbourne gangland wars. Before we get to those stories, we'll head back to the start, where her career began. Off-air... Before we started recording, we were having a yarn about where she grew up. And despite her being in Melbourne now, her journey started a bit closer to where I am, back here in New South Wales. There's a great little story here. You completed the first year as a, as a trainee teacher, but then found that uh, the job would be too dangerous. Um, too scary. And, too scary. And so you decided you'd go and join the police instead. Can you just walk us through that decision, Sandra? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did one year at university and thought, no, this isn't for me. It's um, a bit scary. So I joined Social Security, um, which was scary as well. Yes. And then I, in 1972, I went overseas for 12 months or nearly 12 months. And I came back and they, I, I took 12 months leave without pay. And I went back to the same job and I thought, oh, I can't do this. So I asked them to put me on the relieving team. So I went to Albury, Canberra, and then I was sent to Melbourne to set up sheltered workshop employment with a group of people in Melbourne. I only had one friend down there that I, or one person I knew, and she said, look, we're looking for someone to play basketball. And I thought, well, well I've never played it, but it can't be that hard. I'd played <laughs> netball. I'd been a netballer. Yes, yes. So I went along there and nearly everyone was in Vic Pole. All the okay. women were in Vic Pole. Yeah. And, um, you know, we got talking about the work that we did and I said that mine wasn't all that interesting because it was office bound and I'm not an office bound person. So they said, well, why don't you join Victoria Police? And I thought, oh, that'll do for a few years. So give it a, give it a run. Um, so that's what I did. And 35 years later, I left with my mother, who I might add is still alive. She's 96, still wow. saying, when are you coming home, dear? Oh, goodness. I know um, 
It's one of those jobs, isn't it, uh, Sandra, that when you mention it to your parents, I, I think they seldom embrace it, particularly could I say back in the day as a, as a young woman telling, you know, telling your mum that, you know what, mum, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to join the police. It you would have got a bit of resistance, I'd imagine. I got a lot of resistance, but by then I was already in the academy when I told her because I wasn't <laughs> brave enough to tell her before I went into the academy. And she uh, came down to, she and a couple of my aunts came down to the graduation and they were... Very impressed, but um, if if anyone asks Mum what I did for her own peace of mind, she said, "Oh, she's one of those people who stands on level crossings and um, helps people across." <laughs> she's probably still telling them that when you're the assistant commissioner. Uh, she probably was. <laughs> yeah. Now, I think she was. She she actually came to my retirement dinner. She came down from Sydney, yes. and um, I think she got quite a shock. Right. Of, you know yes. some of the things that were said, and you know some of the things that were read out. So um, anyway, by then I'd gone. <laughs> Getting all those accolades for helping people across zebra crossing. So, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and, of course, back in the day, um, uh, I, I joined the New Zealand Police 84 and, and there were very, very few females in the job. You know, each intake that we had that went into the academy, there was 100 generally in each intake. I think they had something ridiculous like a cap of 2% female. Um, so there were two young women out of a hundred in my wing. And then you go on to section and there's either no women on section or maybe one. So I'd imagine, and you, and you went into the women's police. This is an interesting term, isn't it? It makes you sound like, you know, you were there to only deal with sort of women that were in trouble. But I think that reference was more to you being a woman in the, a woman in the police, a strange term. Yeah, it was called the women's police division. And it was really to deal with women and children who had crimes committed against them. Um, so we we were the first people that they met in relation yes. to rape and sexual offences, et cetera. Right. And then now, if, if my research is correct, uh, Fitzroy was one of your earlier postings. Fitzroy would have been a bit of a tough old era at the time. And I note here that um, in an interview that I listened to, um, Sandra, you mentioned um, at a young age meeting uh, quite a mentor, a, a Janet Lower Sergeant there at... Um, Fitzroy, and uh, I think you learnt some really valuable lessons from 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 her and how she conducted herself in the job. Look, she was fantastic. Mm. Um, as well as being a very good opera singer, she was an exceptional sergeant, and she would take us into places, you know, like um, the hotels, the builders' arms, and places like that that back then women just didn't go into, or if they did, um, they were with people. So she would walk in there and she just had that aura about her that she respected people and therefore people respected her. Mm, and mm. working with her taught me a great deal about how you approach people. You know, you don't approach people with preconceived ideas. You you let them tell the story. And, um, but I, you know, it was a great experience for me. It's such a privilege for me to sit in these discussions with um, folks like yourself with all this policing experience. And and I'll say, Sandra, there's this common thread that often makes its way through it, and it's it's these lessons learnt by very experienced police back in those early days and very commonly referring to just those um, simple walkthroughs in the pubs, treating people with respect and, and then getting that respect back. And uh, also, I guess it's that 
you know, you're young and, and you've, you've grown up in your own world, your own bubble, and you start to realise that people have had different lives, different upbringings and um, to your own. And it, it, it's all skills that transfer all the way up through, um, through the ranks, isn't it? It is. And you're learning the whole time. And if you're mm. not, you're in the wrong job because it is, it's a learning curve from day one until the day you leave. Now, Sandra, you, you transferred out to Mildura. Now, Mildura is a, a, a regional um, area, so some some five or six hours out of uh, out of Melbourne. Um, small regional station, and this is perhaps not always what younger police are keen to do. You know, they want to be in the, the bright lights of the big cities. But I think you quote it as being one of the best things that you've ever done in your career. Why, why, why was why was that? Well, first of all, I have to correct it. I wasn't transferred. I did transfer out there, but it right. was at the request of um, the, they found it very difficult to get police women to transfer to those stations. So what they had a system in place. Anyway, the person who was selected couldn't go, so she came and asked me yes. if I would go. And, you know, I didn't know where Mildura was. I thought it was a suburb of Melbourne, so I thought, <laughs> oh, okay. So six hours of driving later, <laughs> right. when I arrived at Mildura, and it was fantastic because at that point in my career, so 76, early, early days, there were a lot of jobs that women couldn't do. Um, they were just not allowed to do it. But going to Mildura gave me the opportunity to work the watch house. Um, so I had direct contact with a lot of quite serious offenders. I worked with the um, criminal investigation branch as they were back then. So it gave me a huge appreciation of all the different areas within Victoria Police and, and again, how to approach people in different circumstances. And when some positions were advertised, mainly for, it was for women, they wanted, I think, 10 or 12 women to go into a particular squad um, as detectives. And the, the experience that I had allowed me to put in a, a very substantial um, application for that job. And I got it. The time frame here is you've probably only been out of the academy for a couple of years and you're already then applying for a detective's uh, posting is that is that Absolutely. about right? Yes, I joined March seventy four. Yes, and I got the job in June seventy six. Two years. Yeah, two years. Good. That's a very very quick transition, isn't it? And and you would put a fair bit of that down to I guess the CV or the resume, if you will, that you were able to put together during that period of time in uh, in, a, in a regional town like Mildura. Oh, if I hadn't said yes to that opportunity, I wouldn't have even bothered to apply. There's a plethora of cases that we could chat about over your very um, extensive career, uh, Sandra, but there's, there's one, there's a great story, um, and, and it's often these simple little things that stay with us. There's a story about, uh, I think you're at Mildura and you're making your way to an event in Melbourne. Um, there'd been a burglary or robbery or something at the club there, and you were coming through Sea Lake, I think, stopping off for an ice cream, or there was some, some wonderful little bit of detail like that. Can you just walk us through that? So there was an event happening in Melbourne for police women. Um, and so the other policewoman I was working with and I decided we'd go down to it. We were given permission to go. And it was a particularly hot day and I think we were in a Valiant P76, no air conditioning. <laughs> so we got to Sea Lake and we decided that we'd stop for an ice cream and the police knew who we were. So they approached us and said, are you going to Melbourne? And we said, yes. Would you mind taking these two young fellows down because... Um, I think he was a detective at the time. Detective Kim West wants to interview them about something that had happened in Melbourne. And I said, yeah, okay, but I want to search their bag first. Yeah. So I searched their bag and they had a hunting knife and very other, a 
various other things that triggered something in my mind that I'd heard that morning about a burglary at a, I think it was a hotel in um, Mildura. So I, you know, we put them in the back of the car. We didn't alert them to the fact that we suspected them. So we were chatting all the way down because it's a long way. And um, Julie pulled up at Reservoir Police Station and um, I went in and saw Mr West and told him and gave him the evidence that we had collected. And um, he put me in for an award for right. initiative for that, yeah. which just blew me away, really. Wow. Well, because he'd have been a fairly senior chap at the time, I he suppose. Was, and yeah, yes. yeah. You're nervously going in there with a bit of information that you've stumbled across. Yeah. And, and you know, he, Kim was a bit of a legend. I already knew who I was, or who he was before I went down there. So, you know, it was, um, yeah, it was a bit nerve wracking, but I thought, well, the evidence is there. So he just interviewed them in relation to that as well and cleared that one up too. Bang, and they coughed to it. And and, and just from stopping off and getting an ice cream in Sea Lake, you got a sort commendation. <laughs> now, look, um, 1983, this is a, a, an infamous period of time down there in Victoria, of course, the Ash Wednesday bushfires. You had quite significant involvement, Sandra, um, in that, uh, attending the scenes after the fact and also... I believe that you prepared the the coroner's report. Now, that would have involved, I'd imagine, um, a lot of interviews with those affected by the the tragedy of Ash Wednesday. They've lost family members, one thing and another. Listening to those listening to those stories, um, th- there have been some horrific uh, some horrific stuff come out yes, of there. Any, anything that sort of stands out there, Sandra? Yeah, there were the coroner had two teams, so there was a team up at Beaconsfield and the area up there, because that was quite a significant fire. And then the other team, which is the team I was on, which was three people, we had a sergeant and two detectives, and we did all the other fires. So we did Wood End, but we went up to, um, we went down to the coast as well. And while we were down at the coast, um, I remember speaking to a fellow who had lost his wife during the fire. Mm. And... um, and there was no body. And I said to him, so how do you know that was your wife? And he said, because I could tell they were her thongs melted into the bitumen. So that was um, one of the stories, which was just so tragic. And, uh, and every story we heard was tragic. You know, just um, decisions made in a split second that weren't good decisions, but... Um, the, the other one was um, a young fellow was burnt, so the police put him in the back of the car and a fellow came along and was talking to him and he thought he was talking to his nephew, but the poor kid was burnt so badly that he was actually talking to his son. Oh. So those sort of stories, you know, we had, yeah. there was another story of a woman whose husband an only son, she only had one child, and they had gone out to save some horses and they had both perished. I mean, the horses didn't, but they did. So, you know, just about, I mean, every day, nearly seven and a half months, we were hearing those sort of stories. That was, um, yeah, seven and a half months of my life that I would not want to repeat. I think you were quoted as saying, Sandra, that hearing those stories day after day, it took an immense toll on on yourself and, and the other officers that you were working with at that time. Yeah, well, in our crew, we actually started out with four 
and one of the members just could not continue on. And it, do, it does take a toll. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not minimising the toll it took on individuals of because their, their toll was greater than mine because I didn't lose anyone in the fire. But um, hearing those stories day after day, it does take a toll on you. Yes, and I think this is an aspect of policing that perhaps after an event like this, folks, you know, listening and listeners to the to the podcast are probably, in some regards, understandably unaware of that uh, that involvement that the police have in these situations, you know, disaster with victim identification. That it's it's a it's a very grisly grisly aspect of the job, isn't it, uh, Sandra? It is. Yeah, definitely is. You know, I um, I worked with a chap, and it was around this time. Remember the Mount Erebus crash down in the Antarctic? I do, yes. Uh, I think it was near New Zealand flight. And um, I uh, I think it was my final year at school, but I joined the police a year or so after that, and one of the sergeants that I worked with had uh, had worked in that, and he, I'd imagine there would have been possibly some Australian police attending that as well. And um, goodness me, you know, that was a that was a plane that flew into the mountain and everyone was uh, deceased, obviously. And the victim identification and, and the time that it takes. And, and like you said, um, Sandra, those those stories, you know, in, in Ash Wednesday, talking to those families, those those heartbeat decisions that can end in disaster or they can keep families, uh, keep families together. How did you... How did, how did you deal with that yourself? I mean, how do you debrief? How do you check in on yourself going through that for that seven or eight months? Well, I worked with two fabulous people. And, you know, we often talk about police black humour, but sometimes it's what gets you through the day. And, um, you know, quite often it was how we, because we, a lot of the time we were away from home as well. So we, you know, we kept each other company and we'd go for meals and we'd talk about things and, you know, try and find some humour somewhere because that's, that's really all you could do. So, you know, that getting together of a night time and, you know, having a bit of fun, um, that was very important. And also, you know, I used to get up early and go for a swim. Right. And, you know, work it out up and down the pool. I did, I swam nearly every morning that I was in the police force, I think, wow. because that helped me. That worked for you. It worked for me. And that's an important thing. And I'm sure that's something that you would pass on to younger uh, police coming through that you've. You've got to work out for yourself what works best for you. And there can be a negative side to to that, of course. Um, Sandra, I was chatting recently with, uh, with, with one of the chaps we're interviewing, and I said, you know, back in my day in the job, um, sadly, uh, the worse the jobs that you went to, the, the more you sort of got on the drink after shift at night. And that, that, that wasn't commonplace for everybody, of course, but if you got caught up in that culture, that could be very counterproductive. And, of course, back then there was no recognition of post-traumatic stress. There was no counselling really available for the police, was there? No, not back then. Fortunately, they've gone ahead in leaps and bounds and that's now available and it's recognised. Yes. And it's, of course, back in those days, if you put your hand up to say, look, I need to get a bit of counselling, it would have been somewhat frowned upon where now I think it's almost, you know, young police attend a fatal or something such as that. It's almost a mandatory that they, you know, that they make themselves available for some of that debriefing afterwards. Well, we all have, also in VicPol, and I'm sure other organisations have it as well, peer support is also very important. Yes. And you talk about that black humour. That's, um, yeah, it's something that uh, frontline uh, workers are, are very, very familiar with. And 
it's a strange one, that one, isn't it? And it's a hard one to get your head around if you've never experienced it. But I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Some of the, the, the worst jobs, the grisliest crime scenes you attend, it's, I think it's almost like a, it's a defensive mechanism, isn't it, Sandra? It's sort of like, you, 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 strangely, you find something within it that sort of keeps it at, at arm's length. Yes, you, it, it takes your mind away from it, you know, for, to give your mind a rest, even if it's only for a few seconds. Yes, yes. You know, just take your mind out of the situation for a short time to give it a bit of a, a break. Now, we fast forward, um, you became the uh, the first female lecturer at the DTS, the Detective Training School. There's a period too, I think, as a detective inspector that uh, you moved uh, moved out west. There's a, there's a funny story there too, I think, Sandra, which is probably indicative of some of the uh, attitude uh, of the day. And I do recall, interestingly, that hearing you saying that when, you know, when we looked at yourself as a, um, as, a, as a woman making your way up through the ranks of Victorian police, um, I think you were quoted as saying that um, the discrimination that was there was not overt. It wasn't so much in your face. There would have been some stuff going on behind the scenes, but but it's it's there, there was that lovely story where I think you were heading out to a, an environment as a um, as a DI detective inspector and attended a barbecue, and there was some interesting <laughs> comments that were made. Yes, the um, the chief superintendent at the time thought it would be good if I came out to the barbecue and met the officers in charge of the CIBs and the um, special units that I'd be in charge of. So I went out there and a couple of them pulled me aside and said, you know, the good thing about you coming out here is that you won't need to make any decisions. We'll make them for you. And I just thought, well, give it your best shot. Anyway, (laughs) a few of them moved on pretty quickly. (laughs) I think the term red rag to a bull sort of comes to mind there, um, Sandra. Mm. Goodness me, you you don't get to where you got within the job without being able to deal with all that sort of rubbish fairly effectively, I would suggest. Well, that's the part they hadn't worked out. Yes. So, to their detriment, really. (laughs) Because they they would have been coppers who'd never had a female boss in their lives in in the police force, I would suggest. I can't say definitively they didn't, but uh, from their... From the attitude of some, yes. I mean, so most of them were really good, yes. but from yes. the attitude of some, I'd say definitely they had never encountered a female in charge. It's the vocal minority though, isn't it? They're the ones that will come up to the barbecue with a few beers on board and uh, espouse all their, uh, <laughs> all the rest of it. There's challenges for any police officer uh, making their way up through the ranks, but at the time, you know, you were a, very much a trailblazer for women with the with the level of policing that you did. Those challenges, were they, were they there? Were you aware of them? Were you having to deal with them regularly or, or was it not really? Uh, no, they, they were definitely there. Um, you know, I mean, that barbecue is an example, but there was another job that I put in for that um, I didn't, well, I didn't think I'd got it, but anyway, it was reviewed by the person or people who had to sign off on it and they looked at it and thought, no, this isn't right. So... I ended up with the job and, and the person who missed out, who was the favoured candidate by the area that he was going to, yes, um, talked him into putting in, a, in an appeal. So then I was at a function and um, one of them came up to me and smiled and said, so how's your um, brief going? Because you had to put in a brief, an appeal brief. And I said, um, oh, not too well. And he said, oh, that's not good. And I said, no, I've got so many um, statements of support, I'm not sure which ones to put in. And um, They just quietly the, wandered off. 
<laughs> the appeal was withdrawn the next day. Uh, is that right? There yeah. you go. Little things like that. And I had a superint- uh, an, an assistant commissioner approach me as I was looking to go to superintendent. Yes. And he said to me, because um, I was a detective inspector at the time, and he said to me, I've heard something about you. And I said, oh, yeah, what's that? And he said um, that you're very happy where you are and that you don't want promotion. And I said, and that would have been a man who told you that. And he just looked at me and smiled and I said, I will be sitting for the promotion board, yes. And I did and I got the job. Now, ethical standards, you work with an ethical standards for a period of time, and this can be quite a contentious area of policing to work in, where, of course, it's a department of the police that investigates police, um, corrupt police. And um, you worked in there for a time, I think, in charge of surveillance, intelligence and undercover. Can you walk us through that, what that role involved? Because this is a different area of policing, quite obviously, because you are policing your peers, and with your degree of service in the job, you would have if not known personally, you'd have some knowledge or connection to many of the police that you're investigating, I'd imagine. I did. I knew um, most of the people we investigated. So the surveillance unit, I'd never, I was there as a detective uh, superintendent and I had never worked with those groups before, but they were just amazing because we did have a challenge where quite a senior police officer um, who was cognizant of all the sorts of things that surveillance units do, needed to be surveilled. And they came to us and said, look, we think this is an impossible job. So I gathered the team together and said, we have to do the impossible. And they were sensational. They came up with an idea and we executed that idea and we arrested that member. He had no idea that the surveillance team were there watching everything that he did. There was an interview you gave where you mentioned about the the absence of having hard discussions with some of these individuals, and, and that was something that you felt quite comfortable in doing. And you used that term hard discussion being that a lot of these people who you ended up investigating in ethical standards were people who had made their way through and and nobody had ever sort of sat them down and nothing had actually appeared on anything previous to the point where now they're being um, being investigated. And um, you used that term hard discussion. That jumped off the page at me a little. Just explain that to us. I think it's mandatory to be honest with people. And if they're doing something that they shouldn't be doing that's impacting on them, their work, and particularly their colleagues, then you need to have that hard discussion. And I can remember, you know, people who were unwell and had degenerative illnesses that would prevent them from from staying in Victoria Police and doing the job that they wanted to do and should have been doing. So it was a matter of sitting down with them and saying, all right, well, what's something else you'd like to do? I remember one fellow in particular, he had a degenerative um, condition. He knew that he couldn't be non-operational because there's not that many non-operational positions within Victoria Police. 
So I said to him, what would you like to do? If you couldn't do this forever, what would you like to do? And he said, I'd like to be an architect. And I said, well, why don't you use your time while you're here to pursue that? Mm. And he did, and he became a very successful architect Mm. outside Victoria Police. But it's not just about talking to people who who are no longer a fit within Victoria Police. It's it's about talking to people who are doing the wrong thing. You know they're doing the wrong thing, but passing them off to other people. You know, you're better off because you might stop them going into a career or, or continuing in a career where they're being compromised because of something they did or continuing on behaviour that could eventually lead them to being sacked from Victoria Police. And I saw that very often when I was a a hearing officer because people would come before me and secretly their bosses would say, we want you to give him the sack because he's always been like that. And I said, well, I actually can't do that because there's nothing in his history that tells me that anyone has sat him down and told him of his behaviour. Yes, yeah. So, you know... It's one of those things like everybody knows he's doing it, but yes. nobody has the conversation. Yeah. It's it's like if you bring it into any workplace environment, it's like the the, the, the person who everyone in the office knows, everyone, you know, knows he makes these comments or does this stuff, but there's no leverage for senior management to do anything about it if nobody steps up and has the discussion or comes forward and makes the complaint and things such as that. Yeah. No, it's not. And it's not fair to that person because they could be completely unaware of what they're doing is the wrong thing. or And it's not fair to the colleagues that work with them. It's not fair to the organisation they work with or work for. It's And it's not, in Victoria Police's case, it's not fair to the community. That's who we're there to serve. 2005, you took up the role as the Assistant Commissioner um, to Commissioner Christine Nixon. So a very unique situation where the two top-ranked police in the state, uh, both both women, uh, that would be quite historical, I would imagine. Yes, but apparently I only got it because Christine's a woman and I'm a woman. Of course. Goodness um, me. Let's not, get, they... let's not get ahead of ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> what they didn't realise is even though I pass the test or pass the panel, Christine still put me in position for six months to prove that I could do the job. And I had previously missed out on a commander's position under Christine Nixon. So I don't think... She wasn't doing any favours. <laughs> the last thing that I would ever say about Christine is that um, she would put favouritism ahead of work commitment. Right. So if you're not producing the goods, then you're not going to get that job. Yes, regardless of gender or anything. Oh, so, yeah. It, didn't come just, into it. it. It wouldn't come into it because she needs the work to be done and therefore you need to select everyone who's selecting, needs to select the best person. I mean, the, the nepotism that was rife in Victoria Police years ago, mm. um, I would say it is non-existent today because most, because people are held to account for you know, the, their outcomes, you can't use nepotism anymore, particularly for someone who you know can't do the job. And, and I think Christine was very responsible for that. You know, she needed, she needed to prove to the government that we could deliver and she needed people in position who could deliver mm. the, 
what we needed. Yes. Was was it um, ever uh, on the horizon for you? Did you ever have any um, aspirations or desire to take that next step up to be Chief Commissioner or was that not something that interested you? Or Good goodness, no. Not interested? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no, no. No, so quite a difference in role from Chief oh, Commissioner absolutely. to Yes. No, yes. absolutely. And, and, I mean, Christine... I know, was hardly ever home of a night time, weekend. She has a very supportive husband, which is fantastic. Um, but it's it wasn't the life I wanted. And this, yeah, without having to delve too far, this was a, in hindsight, retrospectively, a fairly tough time to be at, a, at that rank uh, in the Victorian police. Uh, a little bit of arm wrestling going on with the police union, one thing or another. I mean, there's always... There's always going to be issues, of course, at, at that level, but but not an easy time to be in your role uh, in, in looking back at that period of time of Victoria Police. Well, I don't think any time's an easy time. Mm. You've always got to deliver on what you've got to deliver on. So, um, you know, we're at, at that level, you, you're looking across your own area um, far more strategically because you have to deliver on crime, community, um, budget, you know, I would have been called to Christine's office more than once over our overspend and we were forever trying to look for ways to, you know, rein in the spending. So a lot of your time was taken up with that sort of thing. Thankfully, I had, well, I think the best team to help me do that because I think when I became a you know, an assistant commissioner, I didn't even know how to spell strategic, much less deliver on it. So, you know. Much less be one. Yes. No, be one. <laughs> so, you know, I, and I had a great team, you know, yes. fantastic yes. team. And and we did achieve and we achieved a great deal. But, you know, Sam, that's a wonderful part of leadership too, that uh, I think it's Henry Ford, uh, and I'm going to misquote him ho- hopelessly, but surrounded himself with people who knew more about sort of different aspects of the job than he did. And, um I think there's a and there's a real um, humbleness that uh, that those in those high echelons have when they can uh, sort of say, well, look, this is not an area that I have expertise, and I'm quite comfortable bringing somebody in who knows more about it than I. But then there's other personality types who would be very resistant to that and try to take it all on themselves. Well, I think that's what I learned from Christine because she used to talk about her time in. Um, New South Wales Police, where they put her in charge of, say, I'll say firearms, you know, the firearms area. And they were quite resistant until she walked in and said, look, I know nothing about firearms. I'm going to um, rely heavily on you and I want you to teach me. So I got to the point where I'd go to my finance manager and say, am I allowed to spend this money? And if he said no, I didn't spend it (laughs) because he was the expert, I wasn't. Now, you know, once you achieve those lofty roles, assistant commissioner, there must have been days or moments where, you know, you, you, you were sitting there with all that pressure, all that responsibility, thinking of that young, that young constable back at Fitzroy with, uh, with your mentor, Janet Lowe, there walking through, walking through the pubs. And just um, at times it must have seemed like 100 years away and other times it must have seemed like just a couple of months earlier. Oh, I think time goes fairly quickly. Yes, And yes. you do... You do sit there and it, it was interesting at my retirement dinner because they were reading out things from my history that I had even forgotten. <laughs> you know, it was yes. so long ago that, and, and so, 
you know, you're always preparing for the next day, preparing for the next day. You know, you're dealing with today, but preparing for the next day. And I think sometimes you do forget um, Mm. those things that happened earlier on in your career. And Sandra, you know, you talk about, you go back to the um, Ash Wednesday work that you did and, and the pressure that was on yourself and your team, you know, with, with the very grisly sort of involvement that you had there uh, and, and dealing with families and having to debrief and that type of thing. A different type of pressure, I guess, being at the level of assistant commissioner, but pressure still the same. You go to bed at night, you put the head on the pillow and there's a whole lot of stuff rolling around inside your head. But what were the sort of, what were the inherent pressures of that, of that role? Was it the expectation sort of with regards to budget and all those type of things? I, I suppose a plethora oh, of different things. It is. And it's also, um, you know, making the, the welfare of your members is paramount. So, you know, you, you just really had, I, I made a, a point of visiting every police station within my region and I had about a third of the state. So I went from Footscray through to the South Australian border and I, I endeavoured to meet with every one of my members once a year at least. And, you know, if, if I could do it more than I did um, because it was important that they knew that I cared about their welfare and it's not just verbal, it's actually action. Um, you know, I, I remember doing a course at Manly and the woman who taught us there said, what you need to keep in mind is um, show me what you do and I'll tell you what you think. So it's it's more about the action, not about, you know, the platitudes that you send out, you've all done a great job. You know, it's not Mr. Grace. It's, um, you know, it's actually being there and sh- showing them that you care and you um, support the work that they're doing because they're very important. They were important for me to achieve what I needed to achieve. So if I didn't have them on board, I would never have been successful in what I did. Um, goodness, there's some great learnings there, you know, from a management perspective. I, I've in, in, in the work that I do uh, at the moment, uh, I go into a lot of organisations, Sandra, and, and do a lot of um, work with staff around harassment, bullying and this type of thing. And it brings up all sorts of different pressures and what have you. And one of the ones that will often come up in environments where maybe culture is not that great is that perception or belief that the staff are not appreciated, that no one's ever come up and walk through their floor and say, hey, guys, you know, well done. And, and this. Oftentimes, senior management are very quick to pull people up for mistakes that they make, but not nearly as quick to actually take the time to walk out of their office and walk around the troops and um, and, and, and be visible and, and just give them that little bit of recognition. And it goes a long way, doesn't it? You can't work without it, I don't think. In, as a, a leader and a um, manager or whatever, the, the troops need to know that you support what they do. And if, if they don't, then you won't achieve either, because I think there's an old saying, you know, an organisation um, or a fish rots from the head down. And so, you know, if, if there's not strong leadership at the top and visible leadership at the top, then you can't expect people to be working for you because they don't know who you are and they don't know how much you appreciate what they do on a daily basis. Yes. Now that period of time, also two thousand five, that would have caught you sort of right smack bang in the middle of the uh, of the um, the gangland 
dramas, killings, call them what you will, in Victoria, um, which I've spoken about on a previous podcast. This was a this was an extremely turbulent time with underworld figures um, sort of taking the law into their own hands. And uh, was at, at the level that you're at, uh, Assistant Commissioner, did that impact on you at all? Was there was there roles that you played um, during that time connected to those gangland activities, um, Sandra? As a detective inspector, I attended a number of the killings, you know, just because I was on night shift when they happened. A lot of them seemed to happen at night. As a, a, an assistant commissioner, we sat on several committees, corporate committees led by the chief commissioner, and those sort of things came up all the time. And of course, if they started a task force in relation to something, then we were involved in that we had to supply people for that particular task force or whatever. So we were always informed about it. We always knew what was happening um, because that came out in our um, regular meetings. But apart from supplying troops and things like that, I didn't have any direct involvement with capturing the, the offenders or anything like that. Yes. From a, um, a young beat constable through to uh, assistant commissioner and, and all the ranks in between, um, you may may not be able to answer, but did you have a favourite rank or, or because they all they all entail different work, don't they? And and anything anything if you look back on it, was there a period or a rank that you had you thought, oh yeah, no, that was I enjoyed everything, but that was a bit of a standout. Yeah, I probably did enjoy everything. That's um that's true. Yes. Um I suppose your last rank is your favourite because it was the one where I could do the most for the members. Um, you know, as you're coming through you can do a lot for your immediate group, but as an assistant commissioner, you can do a lot more for a, a larger group of people and particularly, you know, within the community, you know, the community connections are local until you get to that level and then they become more expanded. And that was, you know, a lot of fun, you know, all the festivals and things that we went to and, and all the community groups that we met. Achievements all the way through were um, you know, little pleasures, but um, I think assistant commissioner was definitely the one where I felt I'd achieved a lot more for both the community and our members. Goodness, well, look, um, Sandra, I just want to thank you so much um, for 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 taking the time to come in and 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 to have a chat with us, and um, and congratulations also on on such a such a stellar career. Uh, you've been an amazing mentor um, and role model for. For, for young police coming through. Could I, can I say particularly, I'm sure, young women police coming into an environment where senior female role models are, are so important. And um, it's been such a pleasure. I'm sure, I'm sure mum is uh, still extremely proud of that daughter of hers that would, stood and allowed people to go across the zebra crossing. Very proud. <laughs> very proud. Very proud mum sitting at that uh, retirement dinner thinking, goodness, she's done a few more things than what I, uh, than what I thought here. Sandra, thank you for, for sitting here. I've really enjoyed our chat and, and thank you so much for your service. My pleasure. Thank you. Crime Insiders Detectives is a listener original production. It's hosted by me, Brent Sanders, produced by Ed Gooden and sound designed and imaged by Link Kelly. Link Kelly.